1: All right, let's get this thing underway. Hey, welcome to the show. By the way, if you'd like to join the conversation, 801-331-8113 is my number. All right, I I start today with I uh, I'm I'm a little bit uh, well, I'm tired, for starters. <laughs> I've been burning the candle at both ends, but uh, I'm I'm a little confused. And and here's the the source of my confusion. It's bad enough that uh, you know in in high school we were required to read George Orwell's 1984 and i don't know maybe you remember it, it, it wasn't like it was a horrible book but it really wasn't that interesting now and keep in mind i graduated high school in 1984 so that was kind of our our class i mean that was our thing we we thought that was pretty cool right man he wrote this about us and it's bad enough when someone is uh, is making you read that book it was quite a different thing when I picked it up many years later as an adult and started reading that book and realized, woo, there's, there's an interesting commentary on reality or at least the direction things seem to be going. And at that point, you know, the question arises. So was this uh, an instruction manual? Was this a cautionary tale? I still believe it was a cautionary tale based on what, uh, Orwell himself had seen Eric Blair, if you prefer his non pen name, uh, you know, from the the Spanish Civil War. He saw some pretty ugly stuff. He knew where fascism and socialism ultimately could end. And though he and I may not have had a lot in common politically, I think the guy was pretty good at taking two plus two and getting four, as opposed to five, which Big Brother insisted, if I say it's five, it's five. So here's the thing that is, is causing me some concern. Did that few people ever bother to pick up the book again? How could, we, how could we find ourselves living almost on the pages of 1984 and not recognize the dystopian reality that's taking shape around us? And speaking of reality, that was a big part of the story of 1984. If you remember, the Ministry of Truth existed for the purpose of altering reality. The Ministry of Truth, whose job was to lie to the people, to propagandize them, to make sure that they never got too close to the actual truth. And a lot of the other ministries were all named with what we now call Orwellian names. Whatever it said by the Ministry of War, yes, that's the Ministry of Peace. The Ministry of Love, that's where you went to be tortured. I think the most disturbing aspect, though, and this is the the one I'm getting to, It was bad enough that independent thought was strictly prohibited and and actually not just outlawed, but enforced under the auspices of Newspeak. This was one of the major tenets of 1984. You had to speak in a certain way because you had to speak in a certain way. That meant you had to order your thoughts in a certain way, which essentially meant that you had no opportunity to think independently because Newspeak eliminated from your language. Words which would allow you to think clear of whatever agenda the party and Big Brother would have you think. And I see a lot of that today. I mean, it's not just Aunt Jemima, you know, disappearing from the grocery store shelves, although that's a pretty good example of it. How many symbols, how many things must be declared as why that was insensitive? We can't have this anymore. But now we have people actually trying to condition us regarding whom we must hate. And that, to me, is the most disturbing part of all. The two minutes hate was a huge part of of how the party kept control of people. There's actually a terrific article by Carolyn Brashears. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. And she starts with the question, the the article is titled, America's 1984, Welcome to the Hate. With a picture of a rioter and a bunch of flaming rubble. (laughs) It's, I, I, I wish this was just, oh, it's just a fantasy. She's just connecting dots that aren't even there. No, this this looks a lot like the world we're facing right now. And she starts with the question, is it time for the hate? It's a question that we, like the protagonist of George Orwell's dystopian 1984, may be asking ourselves now as we tune into a news program or click on our favorite website. For Orwell's Winston Smith the 2 minutes hate occurs at 11 a.m. as co-workers assemble in front of a telescreen. Together they watch as Emmanuel Goldstein, designated enemy of the party, demands freedom of speech and an end to war. And together they scream, kick their chairs, and hurl books at Goldstein's image. The scene reveals the devastating effects of sustained hatred. After 30 seconds, half the spectators are enraged. By the second minute, they are in a frenzy. As Smith reflects... The horrible thing about the two minutes hate was not that one was obliged to act a part, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. A, vi- a hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness seemed to flow through the whole group of people, like an electric current, turning one, even against one's will, into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. End quote. Now, mm. At the risk of sounding like I'm calling names. I don't suppose you've seen any videos of late of uh, what could look like grimacing, screaming lunatics. Maybe interrupting people's uh, pleasant lunch or dinner at a, uh, you know, sidewalk cafe. Something like that. People accosting others as they walk down the streets. People shouting at police officers in Seattle. I don't know. I'm just, you know, spitballing here. But maybe, maybe that's part of what we're seeing. And Carolyn Brashear says it's Oceania's 1984, but it's becoming America's too, as any news program or social media feed will confirm. Left uninterrupted, she says the current of hate could start a fire we may never extinguish. But how are we to stop it? And by the way, it's not just the masked revolutionaries that are out there spreading this. I see it in in the the posts of friends on, on social media who were looking for you know the opportunity to to highlight how bad the other side is but uh, you know quick to defend their own side well, yeah but t- t- look these guys said mean things too and they were violent and they were angry and there's can we just agree there's enough anger out there there's plenty of there's plenty of vitriol and scapegoating and and apparently violence to go around I think it was Paul Rosenberg who who introduced the idea that, look, if, if you have the truth, if you have arrived at the truth, that long, torturous process of slogging out of the swamp of misinformation, you have found your way to something that you can actually hang your hat on. You've won the most difficult battle. You don't need to go vanquish everybody who doesn't yet see it your way. And the truth is, you're going to encounter people who are angry some of them may not even know why. They just know, well, I'm angry and, you know, maybe they're caught up in the equivalent of our two minutes hate. But as Paul Rosenberg says, the one duty that you and I have, assuming that we have come to a knowledge of the truth, or at least we're, we're comfortable, we've, we've committed, if you will, to the truth, is we have a duty not to bring more anger into an already volatile situation. And that's pretty tough to do if the person you're dealing with is angry. Especially if they come up to you out of nowhere and start instigating. I know. It, it, wouldn't it just be a lot easier just to get violent ourselves, right? You know, to puff up and, you know, start strutting around in armor and daring all comers? Come on, come on, bring it on. I'll take a fair fight. I don't think it's the right thing to do. I'm saying you can defend yourself. I would encourage you to know how to defend yourself, have skill at arms know a martial art, know how to think through and have situational awareness so that problems don't blindside you. But I don't agree with the idea that, well, what we need to do is we need to gather in the streets and take the fight to them. And here's my concern. The people who want to do that are going to be shocked at how quickly they will transform from what they perceive as being watchdogs over society. Hey, we're just here to guard the rest of the herd of sheep here, the people who won't stand up for themselves. But when you get together and you, you want to go out and you are looking for an outlet for violence, it's just amazing how quickly that, that pack of watchdogs turns into a pack of wolves. Even police officers struggle with this. And their training, you would think, would, would make it a little easier for them to go, okay, this is going somewhere it shouldn't go. When we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about Welcome to the Hate, America's Version of 1984. It's an excellent article by Carolyn Burchiers. By the way, you will find it in the show notes, which are at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please take a look. There's more articles than I will possibly have time to cover today. Read the articles become a wrong thinker, maybe even consider donating a few shekels if that's your kind of thing.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, our program today is brought to you by our friends at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I would take it as a great personal favor if you happen to be in the market for a refinance on your home mortgage or maybe you're looking for a new home loan. Call up my friend or get in touch with my friend John Staples at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can actually go to staplesmortgage.com. Just like it sounds, staplesmortgage.com. And it'll give you all the contact info, all the background. It'd be a great time to talk to him. He and his wife, Heather, are a couple of superstars in getting things done. They're very, very competitive. But uh, most importantly, I just love John's work ethic is he takes care of the details. He goes above and beyond to look after his people. And it would make me very happy if you were one of his people. That's staplesmortgage.com. A big uh, shout out and thanks to the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being a sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show. So we're talking about this article by Carolyn Brashears, America's 1984, Welcome to the Hate. And this is interesting in the sense that we start with language. And maybe you've noticed this. I hope this, I hope this rings as true to you as it did to me as I was reading her article. She says, she, she has a quote, first of all, from 1984. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. And she says, start with language. In 1984, one editor of the Dictionary of Newspeak rhapsodizes about the destruction of words. By eliminating phrases, the party destroys the ability of people not only to express ideas, but to think them. In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. What words have ceased to exist in this dystopia? Well, honor justice, and morality, to name a few. One cannot demand something one cannot express. And today we might even build our own list, she says, starting with civility. It is elitist, we are told, to insist on treating other, other individuals with dignity and courtesy. To use it in some contexts, particularly at universities, is to incite a frenzy akin to the hate. To be safe, one must use sanctioned sanction slogans, such as those in 1984, Remember those? War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Have you heard some of the ones being tried out for size on us today? She says now we're on the verge of creating new slogans like riots are peaceful protests. Unequal treatment is equity. Looting is justice. After all, looting is a political mode of action that attacks the idea of property and the way in which it's unjust. Unjust. Perhaps people really believe these mantras or perhaps they know that today's big brothers are watching ready to cancel them quickly as quickly as the party vaporizes its opponents to extinguish the possibility of an independent thought. And this is where Carolyn Brashier says, this is where we have to resist because as our language str- shrinks and twists, so does our ability to think. This is one of the two aims of the party in 1984, conquer the earth and to extinguish once and for all the possibility of independent thought. In fact, the individual hardly matters in such a world. We're just members of a tribe, pieces of a body. Can you not understand, a party member tells Winston, that the individual is only a cell? A cell does not reflect or judge. That is why the hate escalates. And because our culture, like Orwell's 1984, is bent on rewriting or canceling history we are losing the sources that would enable us to fight this trend morally as well as politically. Consider Adam Smith's warning in the Theory of Moral Sentiments that in a nation distracted by faction, a spirit of system takes hold, inflaming the public to the madness of fanaticism. Intoxicated by the beauty of a new system, its advocates fall for their own sophistry. Only a few individuals preserve their judgment untainted by the general contagion. I don't know why, but that last quote makes me think of the people who are courageous enough to walk around and to shop and live their lives and go to church without a mask. Only a few individuals preserve their judgment untainted by the general contagion. I really hope that doesn't come across as, yeah, you're calling everybody who wears a mask or everybody who thinks different than you, you know, a bad name. I'm not. I am pointing out with, with some really deep sorrow that, uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of people have bought into, have been intoxicated, have fallen for the sophistry of this new system. As Carolyn Brashear says, and so our ability to consult our conscience, our impartial spectator, the demigod within, diminishes. So instead, we turn to the mob. I don't know if you caught the article here a couple of weeks ago about uh, Vicki Osterweil defending looting. It's a great quote here we'll share in just a moment. Carolyn Brashear says, Today politicians and activists inflame mobs with lies that confirm the orthodoxy, which in 1984 means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. And the most popular lies concern property. This is what Vicki Osterweil said about looting. Quote, She's defending looting, by the way. And she says, looting also attacks the very way in which food and things are distributed. It attacks the idea of property. And it attacks the idea that in order for someone to have a roof over their head or have a meal ticket, they have to work for a boss in order to buy things that people just like them somewhere else in the world had to make under the same conditions. It points to the way in which that's unjust, And the reason that the world is organized that way, obviously, is for the profit of the people who own the stores and the factories. So you get to the heart of that property relation and demonstrate that without police and without state oppression, we can have things for free. End quote. And I'm just shaking my head going, wow, how could a person be that naive? If we just take away property and we take away any means of enforcing a person's property rights or protecting a person's property rights, we can all have things for free. I don't know. It just it reminds me of the meme I saw last week of five people standing there, one of them being beaten on by four others who are wielding big sticks. And it said, did you realize four out of five people approve of democracy? I thought it made the point rather eloquently. Carolyn Brashear says, never mind the process of exchange, never mind the individual innovation that created the products that are exchanged. Simply take away the police and, quote, state oppression and businessmen, and we can all have things for free. She asks, why didn't Adam Smith think of that? She says, if Osterweil is no great shakes at economics, at least she's brilliant at hate. Looting, she enthuses, provides people with an imaginative sense of freedom and pleasure and helps them imagine a world that could be. She adds, riots and looting are experienced as sort of joyous and liberatory. Now, with the promise of such delights, no wonder activists have a following. In fact, they seem to have taken Orwell's depiction of Hate Week in 1984 as a guide. Certainly we've seen examples of delirium and savagery along with Orwellian phrasing. Chaz was merely a block party, a summer of love. Carolyn Brashear says, it's time to interrup- interrupt rather, the current of hate. Time to name both its causes and the long-term effects on individualism and prosperity. Contra 1984, freedom is not slavery. Man, I would ask you, first of all, Go to the show notes at com, Download and read this article. Share it with friends if it hits the right nerve for you. And then I would challenge you, find some time in the next week or so to break out a copy of 1984. And even if, even if you don't read it word for word, skim that book and look for, I don't know, some signposts, some mile markers that could tell you where we are on that road to the kind of society that you see in Oceania. I don't know if your experience is going to be the same as mine. I sure didn't appreciate it back in actual 1984. I didn't really see that. I was only 18 years old. But what I saw the next time I picked up that book was very, very chilling. And the most chilling part was it didn't clearly come down to, well, of course, he's talking about Democrats. He was talking about anybody who loves and worships the state above their own individual conscience and freedom. It's a great cautionary tale.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This Is the Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you feel like joining in, you have that opportunity 801 331 8113. If you're catching the podcast, okay, the uh, phones probably won't be answered, but I do appreciate you thinking about it. By the way, you can leave comments at my website. It's very, very simple. In fact, if you really want to get fancy, go subscribe to the, to the podcast. There's a link in the show notes that'll take you right to where you can subscribe. And you can also leave a voicemail message for me on the podcast platform. So just doing my part. I do love to hear from you. I appreciate any constructive feedback. Obviously, I don't have all the answers, but I do love to share information wherever I can. It's, it's interesting. I shared an article uh, just a little bit ago on, on Facebook. Um, This was an article about how many people, good people, I think I need to qualify this, good people still have this soft spot for communism. Sometimes it's just a blind spot. Well, it's not that bad. Or sometimes it's, you know, outright acceptance of it. No, no, actually, that sounds like a better way. And it's not who you would think. I mean, it's not like, oh, yeah, well, of course, some university professor or, you know, some uh, some kid in a black hoodie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to be the ones. No, it's people who you would actually think would be, you know, very mainstream, um, if not conservative, maybe libertarian in their, their thinking. But there's there's something that has turned them off to free market capitalism. I don't know if it's the crony capitalism. I don't know if it's, you know, the the corruption of government getting in bed with businesses. I don't know what it is. I am going to spend a little bit of time in the final segment, though, uh, talking about uh, how economics textbooks have sanitized the horrors of communism and actually have led people to accept it. And the article that I shared on Facebook uh, talks about this as well. Um, this is an article from two of my favorite writers, John Miltimore, as well as Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. Their article talks about the New York Times reporting the mainstreaming of Marxism in U.S. colleges 30 years ago. And today we are seeing the results. I mean, it may sound like, well, they're just blaming all the bad stuff on communism. But the bottom line is, I think it's great if people want to take care of each other, if people want to share what they have, Fantastic, but it should be voluntary if it has to be mandatory, if it has to be done by the force of the state, if it denies a person's basic human rights or natural rights, if it denies their property rights. It's not going to be consistent with a free society. Maybe I'm being unreasonable setting the bar so high, but that freedom I'm talking about is for everybody. I go back to Carolyn Brescher's article where she talked about um, the the gal who was defending looting. Well, it's a way to punish those store owners and the the people who have all these things. These factory owners, the 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 owners of property, the bourgeoisie. You know, it's a way to punish them and show that we can we can have stuff for free. And I would submit to you anybody who complains that well, you know, the owner of that business is just making money hand over fist. That's great if they are, but I promise you most business owners do not start making money hand over fist. They start by taking an extreme risk with their own money or by having to borrow money, but it's, it's on their head. If they screw around and lose it, they still have to pay it back. And it's through that money and through that effort and through that, dare I say it, capital that they put forward. They create a means of producing things that can then be sold in the market. They, they create opportunity for workers. People who voluntarily say, yes, I will work for you for this wage. Nobody has a gun in their ribs marching them in there. Go now sign the contract. You will now work. You will pump the gas. You will sell the donuts, whatever. No, it's all Voluntary. And the people who want to work hard, the people who make themselves valuable, the ones who create more value, rise through the ranks. And what I'm going to say could probably be taken wrong because it's been taken wrong before, but I'm still going to say it. There are an awful lot of folks out there who prefer the relatively easy, responsibility-free Life and mentality of a slave, someone who wants to be an employee, someone who wants to be told what to do, someone who doesn't want to have to think too hard or take too many risks to actually being an entrepreneur and being the kind of person who is willing to get out there, try, maybe fail, because that happens, you know what, when you're, when you're uh, out there walking that tightrope, there's a chance you could fall. But that's hard. And this is one of the reasons I wonder, if, if, is this why so many people are averse to the idea of liberty right now? Maybe I'm wrong. You know, Maybe I'm just seeing this from, from a totally wrong angle. But it seems like a lot of people run scared the other direction from real, legitimate, authentic liberty. Because it's a scary thing. Because there's risk involved and somebody may not choose to exercise their liberty the same way that I do. So What? I still think Leonard E. Reid had one of the best definitions for what actual liberty should entail or what it should encompass. In other words, what should people be allowed to freely do without any kind of interference, either from government or from anybody else? You know what his answer was? Anything peaceful. Yeah. <laughs> Does that open up some possibilities? But if you think about it, anything peaceful. Something that doesn't require force or fraud? Something that uh, people would freely choose on their own? Why not? But we're, we're a long way from that mindset. I, and I still don't know exactly what happened. I want to, want to talk briefly about another concern. And this is something that maybe this is more for me than it is for you. But um, as I watch the various Videos that come out of the bad behavior taking place. And it's a lot of this is the stuff in the streets, whether it's, you know, the the proud boys going out and, you know, knocking out Antifa members or, you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matter members going up and just harassing peaceful patrons at a restaurant, you know, so they can't enjoy their dinner, taking their beer and drinking it for them. Shouting obscenities, trying to start fights, terrorizing motorists, just trying to get home or get to wherever they're going. It brings out some really dark Feelings, And Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, talks about putting the pieces together after a summer of riots. She says, the other day I drove past the place where it all started. One pulls up to the flashing red stoplight and looks left to check for traffic. There's no need to look right because the traffic won't be there. Instead, one sees cement barricades covered with scrawling graffiti, a block down the now nationally recognizable Cup Foods, surrounded by memorials to George Floyd, who died in front of the store May 25th, 2020. It's a surreal experience tinged with sadness, she says. Sadness over the death of George Floyd. Uh, sadness over the riots which bookend the Minneapolis summer. Sadness over those same riots spreading to the rest of the country, making the summer of 2020 a time of chaos, hatred, confused canceling of anything and anyone. She says reliving the summer's riot highlights might not sound very helpful, but perhaps it can help us peel back a few layers and better understand what fueled them. Scholar Anthony Esselin has some choice insights in this arena in Resentiment, He Hates, Therefore He Is, his most recent article for Chronicles magazine. Resentiment, writes Esselin, is a 1913 book by Max Scheller based on a French term which I'm probably mispronouncing, by the way, which uh, Scheller defines as a self-poisoning of the mind. Those who foster resentment in their lives are full of negative, angry emotions which invert values and call good evil and evil good. Ooh. Yet, resentment goes further. It eats at the internal nature of an individual, seeking to tear down the good in others because he himself feels inferior. It affects education, literature, and art. It is the cause of cancelling vengeance aimed at anything associated with Western civilization. Here's a quote from Esalen. Puny teachers do not revel in the greatness of John Milton or Alexander Pope or Charles Dickens. The greatness of such artists is an affront, ostensibly because they did not believe the values we happen to assert today, but actually because they existed and were what they were. Had the blind visionary who composed Paradise Lost been second-rate, he could be forgiven. This is what galls for man, for the man of resentment still senses the truth, even though he cannot speak it openly. Esalen then explains how resentment relates to the riots we've experienced this summer. He says the riots today are not prompted by the discovery of saintliness and beauty in the life of George Floyd. Saintliness does not inspire mayhem. "'People who love beauty do not burn down churches. "'Floyd himself will soon be forgotten entirely, "'except as an empty name, a placeholder, "'an instrument for altruistic resentment to be laid hold of.'" Annie Holmquist says, "'Over the summer we've been told to say Floyd's name, "'to remember, to protest for his cause. "'Those who fail to join the cause "'or who simply don't voice an opinion "'about some aspect of woke culture "'are accused of perpetuating violence by their silence.'" Yet, as Esselon says, such an attitude is the opposite of the love, concern, and understanding that such protesters claim they want. And it's in fact a frenzy which feeds on hatred. This makes so much sense. And we're going to come back to it just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. So we learned a new word today, or at least I learned a new word. Thanks to Annie Holmquist, the editor of IntellectualTakeout.org. That word is resentment. And I'm sure there's a way to say it in French, but I'm not sure exactly how I would say it other than ha-ha-ha. But no, I I don't speak French. But it's the idea that you allow the negative to displace the good in you, a self-poisoning of the mind. And it sounds a lot like what um, we see people playing into, at least we see people doing in the streets right now. And to to me, the the great caution here is, Brian, this could be you. The more you watch those videos on Twitter, (laughs) the more you confirm, yep, those guys really are the dirtbags I thought they were. The more maybe you are creating a place in your heart for resentment. This is another quote from Esselin from Annie Holmquist's article. He says, If I love you and you are wrong, I will tell you what you must hear, though I may tailor it to your ability to hear it. I will not necessarily feel what you feel, and it is wrong for you to require that I do. For feelings themselves may be evil, even though they present themselves as angels of light. He says, The writers do not seek friendship between men of different races by comparison with the salt of, of, of a hatred that goes by the name of justice. Friendship has no relish. To anyone with a healthy mind, he says that writing is incomprehensible unless we understand that inversion of values that Scheller explains so well, End quote. This is one of the reasons why you will see people with a straight face talk about how, no, actually, it was kind of good that uh, Trump supporter was shot on the streets of Portland here a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago. Just gunned down on the spot. Why? Well, because he was a fascist. That's morally acceptable to kill fascists. See how that inversion goes? It's scary. And it's, it's scary enough when you see it in people that you obviously go, yeah, yeah, I don't agree with them. I think that's terrible. What's scarier is to see that inversion of values start to take hold in people that you relate to or that you agree with, or maybe you even see them start to take hold in the face of that person staring back at you in the mirror. Yeah, that's, that's not so good. Annie Holmquist says, such words are hard to hear, for they force us to examine our actions and the motivations behind those same actions. They force us to question whether we are truly responding in love to the events around us, or if we are instead simply caught up in the excitement that anger, hatred, and destruction bring, that mob mentality. She says, as we say goodbye to the summer of 2020, perhaps it's time to take a peek into our own hearts and lives. And she asks, does a healthy dose of of kindness, traditional values, and common sense reside there? Or are they inverted to such an extent that resentment is taking, is staking rather, its claim? Okay, I may be the only person who takes that to heart, but I'm going to. Because it's important to me that I'm not bringing more hatred or more anger into a situation where there's already way too much of it. Can you love your enemies? Can you pray for those who would spitefully use you? I know that's a pretty tall order. But I still believe that's one of the great commandments that actually makes for a better person anyone who chooses to live it. And I don't always succeed. So this is not me saying, and yes, I do it perfectly. I don't. And the only reason I'm sharing that with you is because I struggle with it, which I assume others do as well. Okay, again, you will find this in the show notes. One other article I'm not going to have time to share with you today, but I would love for you to check this out. Carrie McDonald, who also writes for the Foundation for Economic Education, is warning about how social isolation is damaging an entire generation of kids. I feel for the kids when I see the stuff that they have to go through at school right now, not just with the masks, not just with the social distancing, but there's, a, there is a society wide mental illness that is starting to creep in where people feel like it's okay to scream at a child in the hallway because they're not wearing their mask or maybe they're not wearing it correctly. Or you could uh, have the 17 uh, year old kid who coughed once in his class And his hypervigilant teacher sends him home. He's been home for a few days. And it would be bad enough if it was just like one or two people, one or two oddballs out there doing this. But they're doing it with the backing of the entire apparatus, the whole establishment. Right on up to the governor of my state. Oh, yeah, they got to wear those masks. Oh, yeah, any cough? Why, that could be someone trying to spread COVID-19. I also have a great article from Jeffrey Tucker, which, by the way, I, I have to pimp this one out because you need to find 40 minutes to sit down and watch the remarkable video that he recently shared on the American Institute for Economic Education's uh, or Economic Research's website. It is it is a breakdown of the virus as well as the lockdown issues. It is it's remarkable. And I know finding 40 minutes to to do anything is is not that easy. You'll be glad if you do this. And you can access this by getting into the show notes, which you'll find. This is the show notes for September 10th at com. Truly some great stuff. Okay, the one I want to end on. This is is just kind of an interesting curiosity. I was talking about how it's so strange to me that people are giving the benefit of the doubt to Marxism. And one of the reasons for that, according to according to Brian Kaplan in an article published a couple of days ago. No, I take that back. Published about uh, three years ago. On uh, the Foundation for Economic Education is how econ or economics textbooks sanitize the horrors of communism. He says when he was first learning economics, he was surprised by how pro-communist many economics textbooks were. And he says, I don't mean, of course, that any economics textbook ever said communism is good. He says, what I mean is that textbooks were very positive relative to communism's historical record. Indeed, many seemed deeply ignorant of actual communism, basing their assessment on secondhand information about communists' stated intentions, plus a few anecdotes about inefficiencies. Ah, well, it's not that big a deal. 100 million dead, why? You know, but for the most part, it worked. It was mostly peaceful, like those protests, right? Many textbooks, textbook authors, he says, were in a, in a phrase, communist dupes. In other words, they were non-communists who believe and spread a radically over-optimistic image of communism. At least that's what he says his admittedly flawed memory says. And he gives some excerpts from a number of different economic um, textbooks. Now, he's homeschooling, he's prepping his sons for advanced placement tests in microeconomics and macroeconomics. The primary text is Cohen and Tabarak, which accurately includes horrifying details about life under communism. But while they're working through all the test prep books and skimming Princeton's reviews, cracking the AP economics, bad textbook memories have come flooding back to him, and he shares some remarkable quotes that really do illustrate that, uh, that minimizing of just how bad communism was for the people who lived under it. Here's one. Sentence by sentence, he t- dissects this. Communism is a system designed to minimize imbalance in wealth via the collective ownership of property. Man, that's about the cheeriest description I think I've ever heard. Why, that doesn't sound bad at all. Heck, where can I sign up? Legislators from from a single political party, the Communist Party, divide the available wealth for equal advantage among citizens. Ah, they must be the vanguard. (laughs) But he points out what happened under communism was really quite difficult. Communist regimes began with the mass murder of their political enemies, businessmen and their families. Next, they seized the peasants' land, leading to hellish famines. Next, they launched major industrialization campaigns, and in time, they obsessively focused on building up their militaries, not mass consumption. And no communist regime, he points out, has ever tried to divide wealth for equal advantage. Bloodbaths aside, communist regimes always put party members' comfort above the very lives of ordinary citizens. There's a lot more to this article. I hope you'll check it out. This is, again, in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com All right. So I I have covered a lot of territory. I hope that you will find the time to uh, to look these up for yourself. I hope you'll take the time, too, to visit my sponsors, talk to uh, John Staples at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Tell him thank you for, for sponsoring the show. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast, right at the bottom of the show notes, there's a link where you can do that. You can also become a wrong thinker, and if you choose, you can become a wrong thinker patron meaning you can do a a monthly donation, as little as 99 cents a month. It will help to keep the lights on in both a literal and figurative sense. And maybe, just maybe, enable me to quit one of my half dozen or so other jobs (laughs) by which I keep the lights on and the wolves away from the door. So uh, think about it. Get back to me if you would.